The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. New research shows that dementia rates have actually declined in the United States and Western Europe over the last decade. So what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong when it comes to dealing with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia? And what should we be doing in the future? Our guests on this episode, Daniel George and Peter Whitehouse, have a lot to say about that. Dr. George is a medical anthropologist and associate professor at Penn State, and Dr. Whitehouse is a professor of neurology at Case Western Reserve University and a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Together, they are the co-authors of the new book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Tell us about the meaning behind the title of your book, American Dementia. Our working title for the entire writing process was Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society which focuses on what you said in your introduction, that as uh, some societies have adopted um, public health maneuvers uh, that have helped us keep ourselves healthy and our brains healthy, uh, the rates of dementia have gone down in some countries. We added American dementia to signal that there's a cultural problem here that goes beyond that observation, that uh, we're not thinking straight, we're not remembering properly, we're not planning for the future, we're not doing very well with our own activities of daily living. So the first part of the title signals there's a bigger picture and a bigger story to be told here. Yeah, so tell us about that. Why is it that other countries are having these rates of Alzheimer's? Yeah, I can jump in there. Um, So the United States is one country where we're seeing these declining rates of dementia. Uh, Canada and uh, four other Western European countries are also included in that. And it's a bit of a surprise, right? Because uh, culturally speaking, we always hear about the tsunami of dementia that's coming and uh, this tidal wave, the silver tsunami that's going to drown us in cost. But uh, the research has pulled all of the data from those countries and shown an actual um, 13% reduction in dementia risk for older folks in those societies, and specifically a 16% reduction in risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common uh, uh, form of dementia. Now, why is this happening? Um, the answer sort of harkens back to the mid 20th century, uh, as Peter said, and this is why we need to remember, uh, you know, get past our American dementia and remember things that we collectively invested in um, earlier in, in, in the century, things like the GI Bill, which gave 10 million Americans access to higher education. We know that challenging your mind uh, through cognitive reserve uh, actually provides protective benefit for people that staves, staves off dementia. Um, we set up national health care infrastructure, which helped people manage vascular risk factors like hypertension and high cholesterol and diabetes. 
Um, we had remarkably successful smoking cessation campaigns that were launched in the mid 20th century. Uh, in the United States, about 42 of the percent of the population um, smoked in the 60s, and now it's down to about 14 percent. And we, of course, deleted gasoline in the 1970s, uh, thanks to the EPA's big push that resulted in an 80 percent decrease in lead levels um, in, 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 in the United States. Um, and so all of these factors combined, um, uh, more education, better control of risk factors for vascular uh, risk factors and getting lead, which is a known neurotoxin and risk factor for heart disease and other vascular diseases has all helped, uh, the brains and bodies of people who are now in their graying years in these, uh, in America, in these six countries. And, and that's why we're seeing uh, falling rates of, uh, of uh, dementia that are somewhat paradoxical. So what should we do, be doing going forward to improve the picture as far as Alzheimer's disease is concerned? I mean, I think we're all looking for a magic drug or, or something like that. But it seems like you're saying that there are other ways that and other things that we should be looking at to prevent and to deal with Alzheimer's once it hits someone. Absolutely. I mean, as a clinician, let me speak first, and then Danny can talk about the public health aspects if we like. So we have medicalized aging. We have made everything about us as we get older a medical problem to be solved. And particularly in this country, we think, as you said, that a magic bullet will fix uh, complicated issues. And we're seeing an evidence of that with what has been called, uh, and I agree, the worst decision that the FDA has ever made, which was to approve aducanumab or aduhelm, which is one of these alleged um, magic bullets that unfortunately just did not reach uh, the, the, the appropriate levels of evidence, meaning uh, clinical benefit uh, before it was approved. So we've We've um, we we really are living the the results of this um, uh, obsession with simple magic bullets. But as a clinician, I would advise my patients and have for decades <clears throat> that it's up to individuals and communities to address these challenges by things like physical exercise, keeping your mind active, particularly on purposeful activities, staying socially engaged. And uh, and uh, eating a, a healthy diet, as Danny has said, some of the changes we've made there have been helpful. But ultimately, the book is about community. It's about what we can do together. Um, and Danny is uh, a wonderful uh, uh, agent in community, helping people keep their brains fit in, in community. Yeah, I can I can build on that, too. And just you, you mentioned a silver bullet and um, another area. Yeah, where we're quite critical in the book is this billion dollar um, brain fitness industry, which people will uh, no doubt have been exposed to things like uh, digital brain training games or nutraceuticals, nootropics, uh, supplements, those sorts of things. You'll see the same sorts of promises that, you know, through enlightened self-consumption, we can, uh, you know, um, uh, lower our risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Uh, there's been big regulatory crackdown on the false promises of that marketplace. Um, but you, you asked what, what can we do? And I, that's, I'm so glad that you asked that because that's the sort of crux of our book. Um, you know, when we, when we think about, um, our American dimension, what we've forgotten, you know, we're looking at a current society where six in 10 Americans have chronic disease. 
according to the CDC. Uh, 80 million are on or underinsured. We have rising depression, anxiety, and despair. I know you all have done some really great recent episodes on mental health. Uh, I've worked on deaths of despair in addition to dementia, um, and it's been really troubling to see a rise in anxiety in the culture and the consequences of that. We've had falling lifespan in the last decade. We lost a whole year and a half of life last year, and four of the five last years, we've seen dropping life expectancy too. We, of course, face a national lead crisis now as dramatized in um, Flint, Michigan, and other cities in this country where there's actually more lead uh, in places like Cleveland, where Peter and I have both lived, than there is in Flint. Um, and then lastly, I'll mention, um, you know, the uh, the fact that we're seeing falling um, enrollment in education now because of the runaway costs in the higher education market, which is underwritten by Wall Street, as we all know. And especially for men, um, uh, there's been dramatic, dramatic uh, numbers of men unenrolling from college. All of these things do not bode well for brain health. And so when we think about you know, the future and what, what can we remember from the past? We need to think about the collective investments that we made, um, which have impacted brain health in a very powerful way, uh, but which we're now letting slip away. But if we provided healthcare to more people, if we provided tuition-free higher education and vocational training programs to people, um, if we uh, were able to get lead out of our drinking water and out of the paint peeling on walls in people's homes, all of these things uh, could, again, make a dramatic imprint on brain health uh, for this generation. This episode is sponsored by Ritual, and we're always excited to talk about Ritual's products. And in fact, in just a minute, we'll tell you about Ritual's special offer for Nobody Told Me listeners. Let's focus on Ritual's essential protein products for a moment. The fact is we all need protein, and it's not just about muscles. Protein helps support bone health and so much more. But protein powders can be intimidating, to say the least. Plus, as we go through life, our protein needs change. So it's important to choose a mix for different life stages. Ritual's Essential Protein is a delicious plant-based protein powder with three distinct formulas designed to meet the body's changing protein needs during different life stages. There's Daily Shake 18+, Daily Shake 50+, and Daily Shake Pregnancy and Postpartum. Each of these three thoughtful formulas contains 20 grams of pea protein per serving. Ritual's Essential Protein Powder is a good foundation for your health, and it's easy to incorporate into your daily rituals. I just add water, shake, and sip, and I love the great taste. So do I. It's a delicious handcrafted vanilla formula from sustainably harvested Madagascar vanilla bean extract. There's no added sugar or sugar alcohols. It's soy-free, gluten-free, and non-GMO. You may have heard us talk about Ritual's products over the years. We're big fans and really appreciate that with Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain, you know the what, how, and why of every labeled ingredient. You won't find fillers, colorants, or shady additives. Ritual offers a super flexible subscription service with free shipping for subscribers, free easy cancellation, and a money-back guarantee within the trial period. So are you ready to shake up your protein ritual? Our Nobody Told Me listeners get 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com. Remember, Ritual even offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love. Visit Ritual.com slash NTM today for 10% off your first three months. Again, that's Ritual.com slash NTM for 10% off your first three months. 
What do you think that the impact is going to be of the pandemic long term from the standpoint that you had people who ended up being lonely when they normally would have been able to see their social circle and they maybe weren't eating as well because they didn't really have as many options and also they weren't feeling as good and education. I think a lot of people just decided they were so discouraged by virtual learning that they didn't want to proceed. Is this going to have any impact? Or what is it going to be? So I was just on a call this morning with the uh, Medical Advisory Board of Alzheimer's Disease International, and we were sharing our sense that people um, at different stages of, of these, these memory challenges uh, did worse um, because of both the stress, but also other factors uh, like isolation that you mentioned. So there's no question that this COVID has been bad for brain health even before you started talking about some of the neurological complications. So, so, so no question, um, uh, people with dementia uh, were, were affected more by uh, this. Now, the question is, um, you know, what are we going to learn from this? Uh, how are we going to use this to improve our long-term care systems? As Danny said, we're focusing to a, on a time where people have chronic diseases. And another um, topic I am almost morally obligated to mention in every conversation is climate crisis, because COVID has shown that we have really been neglecting our relationships with nature and people, again, with cognitive challenges, with dementia, are more at risk for uh, problems with, um, with, with droughts and floods and everything else. Finally, if I could just go on for one more second, education. You mentioned that in your question. Danny and I have been involved in edu- intergenerational public schools. And of course, the power of your podcast is your intergenerational nature of our hosts. But we people might, some of my patients would, would volunteer in schools and help young kids in Cleveland learn and keep their brains fit, them, of their own brains fit. And, and that's a very meaningful and purposeful activity. And, and that's that's goes back to what I said earlier. Finding um, a purpose and a meaning with other people uh, is really the most essential thing for brain health. Danny, I'm wondering if you are optimistic that the lessons we've learned and continue to learn as a result of the pandemic will eventually translate into progress in terms of Alzheimer's disease. Boy, optimism is in short supply right now, isn't it? I, I, <laughs> I, I, I hope so. I, I think what we've learned in looking back for this book in the 20th century, what has driven massive change um, is crisis. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the reason that we got the GI Bill and the reason that we got Medicare and Medicaid and, um, you know, all of these other sort of society level investments that we made was because of the crisis of the Great Depression and the world wars. Um, and, uh, you know, I think many of us were hoping that COVID would provide a similar sort of impetus to, uh, you know, to invest in people again and provide living wage jobs for people and, uh, uh, you know, make sure that we're taking care of one another properly, uh, both in society and in nursing homes and, and other places that were disproportionately affected by COVID. And I think one of the frustrating things has been that it sort of felt like we've done the minimal amount possible to, uh, to really steady the ship. And, um, and, you know, I, I hope that we can grow from that and learn lessons. I mean, certainly nursing homes will learn lessons from this. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, let's, let's hope that at the societal level, we can take better care of one another and remember that uh, there are investments we need to make in, in each other. We're not just a, uh, units of one uh, trying to make our way in the world. We depend on one another. Um, we're social animals. 
And uh, the more that we protect one another and put systems in place to reduce risk for people and uh, uh, allocate resources more broadly, the healthier we'll be and the healthier brains we'll have. Now, you're from Arizona. We are we are social beings. We're political beings. And um, the mission of our, our, our public schools are spirited citizenship. And you in Arizona have seen the huge tensions between that individual focused um, uh, neoliberal attitudes that were in the in our boat, uh, you know, in the boat all by ourselves. Whereas um, with all your recounts and everything else, you're seeing that it's the collective that seeks truth and seeks to empower people to vote. That's going to be really important for brain health in this country. So to a certain extent, your question about optimism or pessimism does uh, relate to questions about optimism and pessimism about a democracy and our ability to work socially to support democracy. I think that one of the more convincing arguments for keeping your brain fit is the nun study. And I'm wondering if you guys can explain that and tell our audience, because I think it would really resonate with them. Yeah, I can I can address that. So the Nun study is the first of many studies to show a very simple truth about Alzheimer's disease, which is that pathology is not destiny. Um, in other words, uh, if you have plaques and tangles on your brain, the sort of age-related pathologies associated with Alzheimer's, you don't necessarily uh, show symptoms of dementia. So uh, upwards of 40% of, of people who are normally aged may have plaques and tangles on their brain. And the reason for that, which the Nun study in part um, pointed out is that, as Peter said earlier, if you challenge your mind, if you learn, if you're a part of a community and have a purposeful existence, uh, it, it is a way of building resilience, cognitive reserve that can help you uh, uh, sort of hold off some of the age-related changes that may be happening in the brain. And yeah, I want to kind of sound a, a, a note of optimism here to, to follow your, your prior question. Uh, so when when researchers look at how much of dementia risk is modifiable, they consistently show that about 40% of it is amenable to uh, sort of changes that we all make uh, in our in our own lives, things like managing diabetes and treating hypertension, preventing head injuries. Um, you know, if you have hearing issues, getting hearing aids uh, and uh, maintaining frequent social contact, frequent exercise, uh, about 40 percent of dementia risk is amenable to our our change. So, you know, we want to send that message out at the individual level, of course. But we also want to ask the question of your listeners, you know, what does that mean for the type of society we want to build, the political arrangements that we want to make, you know, the the, the care we want to take one another? How do we build a healthy society that ensures uh, people can live a healthy life in this way? And I'm wondering if you could elaborate more on the point that you make that simply living in a poor community makes one more prone to diminishing brain health. There, there are many aspects to that. Um, probably one of the biggest factors around the world is income inequity uh, as a cause of poor health, poor brain health and poor health in general. That's been demonstrated in many, many places. And we can see um, when uh, uh, you look at zip codes or you look at the amount of air pollution or the, the number of uh, toxin producing um, factories, uh, whether it be uh, lead byproducts or whether it be other heavy metals, that poor communities are disadvantaged uh, for, for, for many, many reasons. I mean, one can also speak about the, the, the poor educational systems that are associated with poor communities. So that's why we've been emphasizing here the positive message that we, we know the way forward. It's just a question of developing the political will to do that. And 
it also involves speaking truth to power. The pharmaceutical industry uh, has is an exceedingly powerful industry, and they have told a story about health, which is a story about taking pills. And there's nothing wrong under the right circumstances. For example, taking blood pressure pills, uh, you know, has lowered lowered the risk of the dementia because of preventing the vascular components. But there are other excessive compl- uh, uh, complaint, uh, sorry, claims. And for example, aducanumab could literally bankrupt Medicare, uh, $100,000 a year. And just think about how many people have Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment, another controversial term that's being floated in this space of magic p- pills. So yeah, I, I, I'm a baby boomer. Danny is, Danny is the optimist of the pair. But I do think the thing, we, we do have a way forward. We can see that. We, we, we're beginning to get some momentum in this country and around the world to address these greater public health challenges that will benefit, benefit um, those with dementia, those of us at risk for dementia, and everybody. You guys talk about how important just having compassion is. Why is that? Yeah, I think uh, part of what we call and others call the neoliberal turn, which is uh, a sort of response to the crisis of the 1970s of stagflation and the oil shocks, where we sort of restructured our economy uh, around more free market principles and uh, started cutting social programs and safety nets. And this, this happened around the world, but more aggressively in America. And I think as a function of that, uh, we saw we saw like a, a sort of resurgence of individualism and uh, an atomization as people talk about, you know, where you just are sort of a unit of one and you're in a competitive marketplace uh, and everybody is fighting for their own share. And I think that's been, at least in my lifetime, that's been the sort of dominant model that we've lived with. And yet we know that um, there are other models out there that, you know, the, the, the four Western European countries where we're seeing falling dementia rates have stronger social democracies. You know, that's within this context of capitalism, but there's still strong safety nets in place for people who fall behind. Uh, we still invest in public goods like education. Uh, higher education was free in most Western European countries and still is. Um, healthcare systems that everybody's a part of. And underlying that is a sort of basic compassion that we're all human. We all have the potential to suffer and to experience great joy. And just a basic empathy and compassion for one another uh, can go a long way in showing us the the, the light in front of us in, in terms of what we want to build as a society. Tell us more about social suiticals. We're all familiar with pharmaceuticals. You use the term social suiticals. What are you talking about and how can that positively impact what we're doing with Alzheimer's disease? Well, that's Danny's uh, uh, favorite, one of his favorite terms. I'll just say again, as a clinician, um, the, the, the idea of writing a social prescription, like I think dancing um, although I'm not natural at it, it's one of the greatest uh, brain uh, health fitness. So I'd write out a prescription, you know, take a dance class, go go dance in your living room. You know, it's physical activity. It can be social. It can it, it can be have it can have a story and music associated with it. So as a clinician, that's an example of a socioceutical. <clears throat> Uh, but Danny, uh, you 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 elaborate on that in the book. What what what's your sense of it? 
Yeah, we, we sort of use that term tongue in cheek. Uh, it actually was something that our friend Richard Taylor, who was a loquacious Texan who had early onset dementia came up with last decade. Um, but it's this, yeah, just this idea that, uh, the, the drugs that we have for Alzheimer's are so limited. The, uh, the, the sort of pharmaceutical approaches, um, are have such minimal efficacy for people. But what does work if you go into assisted living homes is the arts. It's, um, it's dancing, it's painting, it's music, uh, it's uh, storytelling. Um, all of these things that sort of connect to some quintessential aspect of our humanity and create relationships. Um, you know, like I have my medical students go in nursing homes and do uh, uh, expressive artwork with, with people living on the dementia care units. And we do time slips, which is creative storytelling project. And those, you know, quote unquote, social pseudicals are something that uh, enliven people's moods. They, they create bonds between people um, and they're stimulating in a way that is far exceeding of any uh, cholinesterase inhibitor or aducanumab, as Peter has said, uh, far more powerful than any drug. A lot of caretakers, especially if they're family members, want to allow their loved one who has dementia to just chill out and do nothing. Is that the worst possible thing that they can do, even if the person feels or seems helpless? I, I very recommend doing nothing. When you said that, I thought of, you know, the kind of couch potato, um, you know, certainly watching television can be quite passive and it's close to, to doing nothing. I, on the other hand, you know, depending on what the nothing is, the, the, there's a role for meditation. There's a, rail, a role for reflection. There's a there's a role that what I enjoy, you know, lying in a hammock under a tree and, and, and thinking about uh, one's life and connections to nature. So I, I think um, it sounds a little Buddhist to say it, but I think it depends on what you mean by nothing. <laughs> I, right. I can I, I can build on that too a little bit. I I think you know we colloquially talk about the loss of self with dementia. That's sort of the dominant metaphor. But the biggest danger is really loss of place. In other words, the social death that can occur when that label, the Alzheimer's disease or dementia, are extended to people. And uh, you know, as Peter is saying. You, you don't want to be too prescriptive about it. Some people enjoy doing nothing or enjoy just sitting in nature, but you know, we, we don't want to extract people from the protective bonds uh, in society that are sustaining. I mean, uh, losing your relationships because of a diagnosis is one of the most devastating um, things that can happen to somebody. So that's why, you know, something like the intergenerational school that Peter referred to earlier is so important because it creates a purposeful embedded community atmosphere where people can people who are dementia patients in clinics can be mentors to kids in the school. Um, and so, you know, our message would be that, um, you know, people need to continue to be who they are, even post-diagnosis. And we need to, as caregivers and loved ones, try to support them in maintaining their personhood, maintaining their quality of life, whatever that means to them. You know, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So take it wherever you want, both of you. What is it that nobody told you about Alzheimer's disease as a disease, as the impact in terms of what we're doing as a country, as a world to deal with it? What is it that nobody told you that you had to learn the hard way and that you'd really like to let other people know about? So I'm actually going to quote the title of our first book together because it answers that question. The myth of Alzheimer's 
what you aren't being told about today's most dreaded diagnosis. What people are not being told is that Alzheimer's disease is not one thing that can be cured. It is a multitude of syndromes and conditions uh, that reflect brain aging. So I think the most important uh, uh, thing that people can take away from that is not to, as Danny was just saying, not to let the label get you down. Doctors are always labeling people and always making people sick. The fact is, your aging is your own. Your brain is your own. Don't be overwhelmed by the medical process that can make you feel sick, even though I'm a doctor. So I do think you need to see doctors, but don't always trust what the experts say. Yeah, and I can I can go after that. I, so I love the title of your podcast, and I don't know if you all are Beatles fans, but John Lennon has a great song called "Nobody Told Me." So that, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that song. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, nobody told me um, that I would be a caregiver for my great aunt, uh, which I did in my mid twenties uh, for for just several weeks. But it was one of the hardest things that I have ever done, and um, in part, it's because uh, there was a lack of social support around it. Um, and thankfully, our local Alzheimer's Association set us up with a social worker, and 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 we were able to get some help that way. And then we were able to get her an in home care. But I'll tell you, when I had to stay overnight with uh, my great aunt Christine, um, it was a real challenge and a real eye opener for me. And uh, and yet um, I, I did find ways to uh, connect with her through the arts, through stories, through old pictures of relatives um, and uh, f- uh, found humor in in the experience. You know, I she was a very always a very serious, devout uh, Christian woman, and she was a little bit more disinhibited uh, as she advanced in her uh, cognitive challenges. And so um, I, I would just say you have to learn to not pigeonhole what it means to be a person with dementia because you're just a person still you're, and we all change over the course of our lives uh but i think it took me being thrown into the caregiver role to really see and appreciate that oh man i think that's just such great wisdom and i know people are going to want to learn more about this book it's fantastic so how can people buy it and how can people connect with you guys yeah thank you um appreciate that we we have a website um americandementia.com and uh, people can uh, order the book there. We have a link to Amazon, but also to like local bookstores if people want to support there. We also have a Facebook page that is um, named after our first book, The Myth of Alzheimer's. So if people just search Facebook for that, uh, they can get in touch with Peter and I there, for instance. And um, uh, yeah, we're always happy to, to talk to people and, and open to, um, to hearing from folks. Well, you certainly have a a really interesting take on this, and it's one that I think we can all benefit from and we all need to reflect on. So thank you so much for joining us. You know, it's like everybody can make a little bit of a difference and that you guys aren't asking that much. (laughs) Right. You you take an overwhelming topic and you break it down and you make it so that it's accessible to to all of us. And and I really appreciate your approach. Thank Thank you. you. We appreciate it. Again, our thanks to Daniel George and Peter Whitehouse, whose book is called American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. And their website is AmericanDementia.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 